I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. On today's show, we feature a remarkable panel and happening at the National Constitution Center. Hannibal Lacombe is composer-in-residence at the Philadelphia Orchestra. He is a musician, a jazz trumpeter, and a prophet who wrote an extraordinary piece, Crucifixion, Resurrection, Nine Souls Traveling, which premiered at the historic Mother Bethel African-American Methodist Episcopal Church, the oldest African-American church in America, not long ago. The Mass commemorates the anniversary of the September 1963 bombings of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, as well as the anniversary of the recent bombings in Charleston. And as part of the extraordinary premiere of this moving, spiritual, unforgettable Mass, the Constitution Center hosted a panel with Hannibal Lacumbe. He was joined by Sarah Collins Rudolph, the survivor of the 16th Street bombings in Birmingham, as well as Steve Levingston, nonfiction editor of the Washington Post, who's written a riveting new book, Kennedy and King, about the relationship between those two great men, which also talks about the Birmingham bombing. Uh, no one who was at the program will ever forget it, and I'm excited to share it with you now. Let's get started.
Wow. Hannibal, that was overwhelming. That was searing and powerful and sad and unforgettable. Tell, what, what, what story are you trying to tell with that music, Hannibal, and why did you write that ode to Sarah Collins? Um, what I can't imagine, what I can't live, I imagine. And I, I can't imagine losing my sister in such a condition. I can't imagine what I would have to do to go on. So the air that I was playing represented the ancestors. And the ancestors are always with us to help carry us through our suffering. So that was the symbolism of the air. And I imagine that's the only compass we can have to get us through. Because the ancestors, they always come with the word of the divine and creator. So that's what it was. And it's just my way of trying to say, uh, as a human being, I apologize for what happened to you, what you've had to, uh, to endure. So as a, as a human being, I'm, I'm deeply affected by the suffering of anyone, but especially in your case. And to get to know you is really, it's really a gift of gifts. I don't look, I don't, I'm not interested in Grammy awards and all of that nonsense. But just to, to know you and to be with those kids this morning in Camden, that's my reward. And tell us what you're trying to say in the piece that's performing tomorrow night. What, what stories are you telling there? That only through forgiveness does this world have a chance to, to endure. That's our only hope, to, to be forgiving. It's our only hope as, an indivi as individuals to forgive ourselves of our shortcomings because then we're able to see our, our divinity. And for those nine people to have perished as they did, from that came the proof that if there's anything known as a saint, then certainly they are. Because their children, from, from, the, from the training and the teachings of the parents, the children forgave the killer of their parents. And I can't imagine anything more challenging than that. And so by forgiving them, they freed us. They freed the person, they freed the mother of the killer. It's, it's, I'm still trying to process the information that the Creator gave me concerning this. And probably all of my life I will be, but that's the key of it, is forgiveness. Forgiveness allows the river to continue to the ocean. It's tremendous. I have to ask just one more question. Uh, I saw you composing
that piece? Is the creator coming through you? How, 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 do, you, how do you compose that music and, and those words and get your, your message? First thing I do is get out of the way because I think, I think I know what it is and you never know what it is until you ask the creator. You, you, you have no idea, lean, do not lean unto, unto your, thine own understanding. So it's only when I got out of the way, I thought it was one thing, but when I went to the forest and prayed and fasted and meditated and cleared my head, then the creator said, this is what it is. So now it can affect people 100 years after I'm gone. If it had been my way, maybe a few people it would, it would reach, it would touch, and maybe for two or three years. We, in the music business, we say a hit record. It would have been a hit, <clears throat> but it would not have been long-standing, long-lasting, and the creator is eternal. That is beautiful. Thank you for sharing this divine gift with us and this incredible music. And we're going to talk more about the history of this event, and then we're going to hear from Sister Collins. Steve, the Birmingham church bombing is at the end of your incredible and definitive book. Why don't you tell us what it was? Re re describe what the bombing was and, and put it in the context of what came before and what came after. Right. Um, First, I, I just would love to say that um, that was just such a beautiful rendering of the feeling of this tragedy and the aftermath. Um, what I've tried to do is to, to do something like that, but in words, and I don't know that I, anyone can achieve what you've done in music there. But um, what's important to know about the, the bombing in Birmingham is that it came after the March on Washington, just a short time afterwards. That March on Washington, as we know, was really a high point in the civil rights movement. We had thousands and thousands of, of people descend on Washington for a peaceful protest, and we had Martin Luther King give his famous I Have a Dream speech, and everything went beautifully. Everybody felt that the civil rights movement was, was going forward and we were gonna have great progress. John Kennedy watched the events from the Oval Office, and he listened to Martin Luther King give his speech, and he was blown away. He couldn't believe that, there was, that, that this man was able to deliver such rhetoric and such oratory that after the, after the march, he invited all the organizers to the White House. And they came to, to um, the Oval Office and Kennedy greeted each one of them. And when he saw Martin Luther King, he shook his hand and he said, I have a dream. So this really had a very big impact on, on Kennedy, on the country, and on the movement. But it was just a short time later that we were reminded how difficult it is to move forward on civil rights. And that's really the context of the bombing in Birmingham afterwards. And I'm just gonna read you a short passage from my book, which is a little graphic, but it gives you the sense of what actually happened at that moment in that church and how devastating it really was. And I think it's, the reason I'm, I wanna read this is that I think it's really important for people to know more than just the generalities of it, but really the, the significant impact of how these things happen and what happens to the people who are involved. So it goes like this. It was this after the, the March on Washington, just two weeks later, on September 15th, the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, held a youth day celebration. Dressing for church was important, 
and this was a day for everyone to show off their fashionable church clothes. 14-year-old Carol Robertson wore medium-high heels for the first time. Shy Addie Mae Collins, also 14, was an usher in a white dress. And her 12-year-old sister, Sarah, was also in her finest. Saxophonist and honor, honor student Cynthia Wesley, 14 years old, showed up all in white, and 11-year-old Denise McNair, who had a dog named Whitey, wore a purple dress and her hair up in a French twist with a gold barrette. A little before 10.30 in the morning, the five girls scampered downstairs to the women's lounge for some primping before the 11 o'clock service. Robert Chamless, nicknamed Dynamite Bob for his role in many Birmingham bombings, made his own elaborate preparations for Youth Day. Two weeks earlier, he had shown up at a store in Blossburg, Alabama, about 15 miles north of Birmingham, and left with a case of dynamite containing about 140 sticks. On the morning of September 15th, Youth Day was cool and overcast. Disguising himself as an old man wearing a hat and walking with a cane, Shambliss climbed into a turquoise Chevrolet with Confederate flags flapping on the antenna. He drove to the 16th Street Baptist Church with three other Klansmen. Dynamite Bob figured about 20 sticks would do the job. Working quickly, the men placed the bulky package outside the front of the church at the basement entrance. It was connected to a crude timing device that would detonate the dynamite later in the morning around the time the church was filled with kids and their parents. At 10.22 a.m., when the girls were in the downstairs lounge, the dynamite erupted with a thundering blast. The church quaked, walls collapsed, doors blew out, the rafters tumbled down, flames shot into the sky. Outside, chunks of stone rocketed through parked cars. A passing driver was knocked unconscious when his windshield shattered. Pieces of brick shaved leaves off of trees in Kelly Ingram Park, some 200 feet away. Inside the church, a teacher screamed, lie on the floor, lie on the floor. A skylight crashed onto the pulpit. A stained glass window blew out, erasing the face of Christ. A brick and stone wall collapsed onto the women's lounge, and parishioners dug barehanded through the rubble in a haze of dust and debris and came upon the bodies of four little girls. The horror was unimaginable. One girl had been decapitated. The only sign of life was a weak voice calling out, Addie, Addie, Addie. It was 12-year-old Sarah Collins, hoping to hear her big sister calling back. That's what happened that morning in Birmingham. And today we have with us that sole survivor, Sarah Collins Rudolph, as a witness to history, which is really the important thing about where we are today and, and what we're talking about here today, because if we ever forget about this stuff, these terrible events, um, we're lost as a people and a nation. That was beautiful, Steve. Thank you so much. Sis, si, Sister Collins, well, 
you, you were there. T t tell, tell us what it was like and what the effect on you was. Well, I remember that morning how we walked to church. It was my sister, Ada and Jane and, my, and myself. We how we walked and, and we walked to church. We was having such a good time. Uh, my sister Jane had a purse and we walked to church and we were throwing it, having, just laughing all the way, just never knowing what we was walking into that morning. So that's when we went into the lounge and freshened up. So uh, Janie went to her class upstairs and our class was down in the basement and while I was in the, in the latest lounge, that's when uh, class turned out. And I, I was looking out the door and that's when I seen uh, Denise, uh, Cynthia, and Carol, and Eddie and I, we was already in the lounge, so when they came in, they went on the other side where the stalls were located. And when, when they came out, I was standing by the sink, and Eddie was still standing by the couch in front of the window. And when they came out the stall, they came out together all three of them, and Denise walked toward my sister, and she turned around, and, and she said, Eddie, tie my sash. And while I was looking from the sink, and Eddie reached her hand out to tie it, and when she did like that to tie it, that's when I heard this loud sound, boom. And all I could do was say, Jesus, and I jumped. And I began to call out her name, Eddie, 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 but I didn't get an answer. So I thought that the uh, girls had left me there because I was blinded from the debris because it came rushing in from the uh, wonder. And uh, when it rushed in, I was blinded in both eyes. And I heard someone holler. Somebody bombed the 16th Street Church, and it was so loud, as though this person was inside with us. But right where they were standing, they placed the bomb right there under the step by the wonder. And uh, when, they, when this guy said that, they rushed in, and I found out his name later. His name was Samuel Rutledge. So I met him later on through the years. And he told me that he was the one, he, he heard the noise downstairs. He was up in his class uh, upstairs, so when he looked out the, out the door to come down the steps, the step was blown away. So he just jumped down, and when he jumped down, he seen me standing there, I was bleeding, so they rushed me to the hospital, still uh, heal my hospital. And when I got there, they had told me that I had to uh, wait on this little cot because uh, the eye doctor wasn't there. So I laid there and, uh, on the cot for a while. And that's when Janie came in. She came in 
And I asked her, I said, where's Eddie? She said, Eddie had hurt her back. But I found out later after I overheard her tell somebody that her sister, some, it was a nurse who, I don't know who it was, but it, she told them that one of her sisters was killed in the bomb. And I didn't know, I didn't know, uh, n never did know what had happened, really until they uh, bought me out of surgery. And when I uh, came into the room, my mother uh, was waiting for me, and, that's, and, and she told me that uh, all the girls that was in the latest lounge with me that, that uh, day, they was all, all of them was killed. I was the only survivor. So uh, all I could wonder, why did they kill her? You know, at the age of 12, I didn't understand why did they, the girls was killed because all of them, you know, were sweet, innocent girls. They never did do any harm. And, you know, all we liked to do was go and worship God and, and Ursha and sing in the choir. Because, you know, that Sunday was you Sunday, and that's what we was going to do. But uh, we never did get a chance simply because, uh, because of the clans had bombed the church that Sunday. What's the effect on your life been of that experience? Uh, well, during that time, after uh, I had uh, got out the hospital, uh, at least while I was there, after they took the uh, patches off my eye, the doctor asked me, he said, what do you see out of your uh, uh, left eye? And I said, I, I see a little light. And he, he said, what do you see out of your right eye? I said, I can't see anything. I, so I was blinded in my right eye. So uh, it had a great effect on my life because when uh, I went back to school, uh, I had to go back in that February because the doctor had told my mother to bring me back that February because they was gonna have to remove my right eye because if they didn't remove my right eye, I would go blind in my left eye. So, you know, back there during that time, we, they didn't counsel, they, they didn't counsel our kids, you know, for the thing they went through. I had to go back to school and I wasn't really in a, in a terrible condition because the bombing, you know, that, that, that sound was so loud, and it was, the vibration of it, it just put so much uh, attention in my spirit. And, and uh, I would start hearing loud sounds, and every time I would hear loud sounds, I would jump, and I, I would just think about the bomb all over again through my lifetime, because, you know, back there, in the 60s, they would have these cars, you know, they backfire, had that backfire noise, and every time I would hear that, boom, 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 it just put me in the mind of that bomb. So it affected my life a lot because I didn't, before the bomb, and I was an A student, but when I came back to school, 
my grades had stopped, then uh, uh, went down. I, I began to uh, have bad grades, D's and F because I couldn't think. I couldn't think anymore. All I could think about really was, was the, what had happened and the, those innocent uh, girls were killed, you know, my friends. and. It changed my life a lot, and I, I, I began to have a, a nervous condition, fear, because after uh, the uh, church was uh, remodeled, my mother uh, took us back, because they was having church at this L.R. Hall. So when she took us back to the 16th Street Baptist Church, I couldn't stay there anymore, because I was so fearful, just thinking maybe another bomb would go off. So we went back a couple of Sundays, uh, but I didn't go back again, you know, because I was too scared to sit there. So it really, it really affected my life a lot. Hannibal, there are a lot of stories to tell in the civil rights movement of oppression and freedom. Why did you tell, choose to tell Sister Collins' story? in your music? It points to a, a rather brutal fact that the people put on a ship force, forcibly and shipped to all parts of the earth for the express purpose of enslavement. It speaks to a brutal fact that Slavery worked, psychologically it worked, and that in a way, those people and the descendants of those people are still in bondage, Psycholog psychological bondage, economic bondage, but mostly psychological. And so it's my, it's my expressed duty coming from Silas Burgess, one of the people on that ship, it's my express purpose to remind the people that the one who drove the ships are truly the ones who are in danger not the ones in the bottom of the ship, but the ones who think they're king and doing horrible things to humanity. They, in fact, are the slaves because you're only a slave if you accept being a slave. So that's why my grandfather, after lying on his back for five months in chains, when he died, he left 101 acres of land and 22 children because he was never a slave. He was enslaved. So my work is to, my work primarily is for the liberation of human beings and in particular, the ones who have been made to think they are slaves when in fact they are not. The ones who are made to be think that they're slaves, they are the key to the liberation of the ones who enslave them. 
And that all speaks to forgiveness. Because if the slave, if the one that's captured cannot forgive the one who captured them, then the one who captured them is, will, will, will never ever see the essence of the creator. No way. I'm convinced of that, I should say, in my opinion. Sister Collins, can you forgive your attacker? Yes, I, I already, you know, I forgave them for, the, for, the, for what they did because, you know, if I continue to hold that hate on the inside, it don't do me any good because it won't bring back the, my sister, it won't bring back uh, my sight, you know, so I had to forgive them. Steve, this amazing book, which you, you have to read this book, because this tells the story of this, these two incredible figures, the, the President Kennedy and, and Martin Luther King, and how Kennedy was initially cool and resistant and was eventually persuaded by King and by events like the ones that we just heard about to embrace civil rights. Put what you, we've just heard in historical context. This is a big story, but Birmingham was a central part of it. And that church was a big part of it too because protests that emerged from that church created some of the most important moments of the civil rights movement. So help the audience understand historically and narratively the story that we've just heard. Um, well, I think the bombing in Birmingham also speaks to the question of the power of leadership. Um, at that time, as we all know, um, George Wallace was governor of Alabama and he was a staunch segregationist. His language was aggressive. And after the um, bombing, Martin Luther King was one of the first who came out and said that George Wallace really bore some of the blame for that bombing because he inspired others to act in intolerant and, and violent ways. Um, I think that's a, it's a very important point that carries on from that time to this day that leadership is really essential in, in our progress, in our sense of understanding, tolerance. And in terms of Kennedy and King, K Kennedy's leadership also um, was very important at the time in the sense that, as, as Jeff said, when Kennedy became president, he was not a civil rights advocate. Um, he had friendships with some racist uh, Southern governors. He was more interested in his political agenda than he was in the plight of 20 million black Americans. He wanted to get things done on taxes and unemployment. So he um, kind of rode lightly on civil rights, looked at it as a law and order issue, not a moral issue. But then over time, as um, Martin Luther King continued his protests and as um, the movement expanded and became bigger and stronger, um, a gradual transformation, I believe, and that's the theme of the book really, came over John Kennedy with instrumental help from Martin Luther King. And that was um, over the two and a half years really it took John Kennedy to begin to realize that civil rights was a moral issue. It was a moral necessity. And he learned that really from the moral authority 
of Martin Luther King. Uh, and it took him those two and a half years until June of 1963 when he sat down in, in the Oval Office and spoke to the nation about civil rights. This was after um, George Wallace tried to block students from entering the University of Alabama by standing in the schoolhouse door. It was during the height of the demonstrations in Birmingham, led by King and others. And Kennedy went on the air kind of um, quickly. He wasn't planning to speak as quickly as he was. He almost had an, an incomplete speech. He was winging, a, winging it a little bit. But he gave a, a brilliant, powerful speech that, I, that identified the, the moral necessity of civil rights and said that he was going to introduce legislation to, to deal with discrimination and segregation in a broad way in the country. Um, that was really you know, a significant turning point and a significant sign of how anyone, particularly a president, can evolve and grow and learn compassion and empathy and have a conscience, which is really the important thing for our leaders. I'm going back to the leadership issue. Um, and he demonstrated that you know, 50, 60 years ago. And it becomes as relevant today as it was then. That account of that June speech where he literally is about to go on the air and the speech isn't finished and he's somehow like King in the letter from the Birmingham jail who's channeling a divine message. Kennedy seems to be seized by a sense of the moral injustice of segregation. But what was it that changed Kennedy's mind? You talk about the pictures of the dogs and the hoses in Birmingham that seared the conscience of a nation were there other central moments that made this man, who you said was hardwired to grow and to evolve, uh, and led him to embrace this position? Well, I think it's a you know it's a it's a complex thing. We all we all want to grow and improve as we as we um, develop, um, but there were many factors in in Kennedy's experience. I mentioned Martin Luther King was was very important, but there was Robert Kennedy as well, who was moving more quickly than than John Kennedy on the issue of civil rights and understanding the morality in the issue. Um, there were other personal issues in John Kennedy's life um, that I felt were making him mature as a man personally. Um, the stroke that his father had in, in late 61, soon after um, John Kennedy became president, was a humanizing thing for John Kennedy, I, I think. Um, he learned sort of a compassion <clears throat> and an understanding of those who were less um, able to experience life the way he did. And it was in his own family with his father. And he was, he was the one who was there um, kissing his father's forehead every time he saw him and bringing him into the Oval Office um, in, his own, in his father's wheelchair. There was one incident, one um, instance that was <clears throat> kind of moving where we all know that John Kennedy had back problems and he had a special rocker in the Oval Office. And one day they wheeled his father in, who was in a wheelchair and unable to speak, unable to, to, to do much of anything, except he did comprehend. Um, so John moved his rocker over to the window and put his father over next to him and said to his dad, look, we both, both now need special chairs to get on. And it was sort of a, in my mind, the sign of a guy who was growing and understanding that um, the world is larger and, and bigger than just his own desires. Um, he had, th there, were, there were many instances like that, um, and also in, in the civil rights movement as well. Um, 
So it was, I think it was really just a, a complexity of, of forces that were, were driving him. Uh, and, and just take the story um, up from what the consequences of the Birmingham bombing were. It was uh, preceded by a series of court orders to integrate the schools that led to the bombings. And then the bombing took place and there were protesters in Selma who fled to Birmingham to mobilize and then a year or so later led to the Selma march. But what was the impact of the Birmingham bombings on the civil rights movement more broadly? Um, well, the, the impact I think was partly what we've, what we've been discussing is just coalesced in a way the movement. Um, and I think it, it also galvanized the larger movement to really move forward and try as hard as possible to get legislation. That was Martin Luther King's goal from, from the beginning was to get government action at the highest level. For a long time, he wanted John Kennedy to sign an executive order, a second emancipation proclamation. Um, but Kennedy was resistant to that. That would have you know, struck down segregation and discrimination in many ways with a stroke of a pen. But that was, that was not something that John Kennedy was ready to do. Um, after Birmingham, I think there was more momentum. There was more understanding in addition to the momentum from the, the um, March on Washington to actually get this legislation through. Unfortunately, um, soon after the bombing, John Kennedy was, was assassinated and it fell to Lyndon Johnson to carry on. But I, I do think that there was a, there was a galvanizing um, impact from all of this as well, that you can push forward out of tragedy, one hopes. Hannibal, this is the Constitution Center. This is a temple to the Constitution and the promise of equality. And before we came on here, we, we had a prayer and we wondered what Jefferson would think of us coming out here with all of his flaws, his promise of equality and the way that he betrayed it. And I guess I'm asking you, what, what's the importance of these laws, the Civil Rights Act, the Constitution, the promise of equality in guaranteeing justice? It's like, in music, it's like a leading tone. <clears throat> so you follow the lead, the leading tone sets the basis for all of the musical colors, comes after it. It's like the spinal cord. So, this ideal that we are divine, we are human beings, is the spinal cord. And all that comes with that is like the other parts of our bodies. But that is the center. And as long as you're, as long as you're okay with the center, you can deal with the other things that come into your life. And, and what's, what's very important is when you really believe what you say, when you, when you really believe that people are, are equal under, under the law and in the eyes of heaven, it's very important to believe that. And I think somewhere, somewhere along the line, people really believe that because it's a, it's a, human, it's a human thing. It's common throughout humanity, throughout the world that we want to have peace, basically, and to be free. It's, it's, it was in the Iroquois nation. It was long before Jefferson thought of these things that existed. 
So in that fact, I have a certain kind of certain kind of confidence in it that it that it can be. <clears throat> the same night Kennedy made this speech, my 100% all-out hero was shot in the back, Medgar Evans. So it's like one step forward, thousand steps backwards. The very night he made that speech. Why is Med Grevenger all out here? Because he was like he was like John the Baptist. He didn't have the backing Dr. King had. Medgar was alone, backwoods of Mississippi. One year he put seventy-three thousand miles on a car. He never ever turned anyone down. When I would speak his name in the presence of Mrs. Till, she would weep. He was all by himself, had no church, nothing, except this powerful. He said, I might go to heaven, I might go to hell, but I'll be leaving from Jackson. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Who are some other heroes whose stories you tell in your music? Heroes of the Civil Rights Movement and heroes to you. Mother Parks, for sure. Mother Parks taught me so many things. <clears throat> she said often, in the imagery, the one that is seen to be in power is really not in power. And we were in her, in her house one day, and the phone rang continuously. And as it turned out, it was the man on, on this iconic photograph, the young man with the uniform who was booking her, he was on his deathbed and he was trying to reach her to, to tell her thank you for what you did that day. It was his first day on the job and the cameras from all over the world were upon him and he was trembling. And she took his hand and said, oh baby, it's all right, it's your job, Don't, it's okay. So if you look at the photograph, you would think he was in control. But the fact is, she was in control. When you write, I, I, I saw you write, and I saw that music coming, coming through you and the, and the words. And when we, when we met in the park, and you were composing then too, and can you place anything more from the, from the performance for tomorrow? Can you give us any more music or recite some of the words that you're going to be sharing with, with the world? Well, after I finish the piece, and my wife always says, why don't you just finish it? You, you, you're losing your mind. You, you're driving everybody crazy. So when I, I came here to finish it, to give, give her a break, I said, well, okay, I finished it now, but I continued to write. And I said, Lord, please, give me, give me a break. You know, I'm losing weight. Something, give, help me out. So. I continued to write a piece that I didn't know why I was writing, what I was writing, but the title of it I wrote in it, and it's, it was ca it's called We Who Lived. And then I had this dream of three women and a little girl. And those three women, among them was Sister Collins. 
And they were saying, what about us, Hannibal? What about the ones who lived? I said, I got you. So I realized what I was writing. It says, I have lived to tell the story. I have come to testify that God is the true power. Their truth will conquer the lie. Stand, my people. Stand where you are. The day of redemption is not so far. Stand, my people. Stand up while you can. Armies have gathered to carry out his evil plan. Come, ancestors. Come, come, come. Angels to touch the hallowed ground. It's time to strike the head on the nail and drive this evil down. How long must we suffer? Only time will tell. We will dance the dance of heaven or share the fires of hell. Anyone who can possibly be at the orchestra tomorrow night to see crucifixion, resurrection, you've got to go. It's, it's at Mother Bethel AME Church. I said it was going to be at the orchestra, but it's going to be at the Mother Bethel Church uh, tomorrow, and it's going to be an unforgettable happening. We have some questions from the audience, and I'm going to ask uh, a few of them. Uh, Sister Collins, there are a lot of questions for you, and uh, two of them are these. Uh, can you tell us what happened to the bombers? And also, Mrs. Rudolph, what has been your passion or motivation since the Birmingham bombing to move forward? Well, uh, I know in 1977, uh, uh, Robert Chambliss, they had his trial, and uh, that was uh, 17 years after the bombing. So they had uh, Robert Chambers trial, but uh, Cherry, Bobby Frank Cherry trial was in the year 2001. And also, uh, also, uh, yeah, uh, Blanton, yeah, Thomas Blanton. Thomas Blanton trial was also, it was in 2002, but you know, it, would, it took so long. It was really 39 years after the bombing when, when they had uh, Blanton and Cherry trial. And uh, they did everything they wanted to do. You know, they, they enjoyed life. But they, uh, I always think you know, about the girls. They didn't get a chance to live their life. And it just really was something that really made me angry just to know they waited that long to have their trial. And um, what your next question was? The next question is, what, what's been your motivation uh, or your passion to move forward? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I had, uh, was ordained, had been an ordained minister. And uh, I go around uh, telling people about my, what, what God did to me, did for me, you know, after the bombing. 
you know, after the bombing, I was uh, nervous and I was so fearful. And uh, I went to this church. My sister was telling me about how God was healing and delivering and uh, people was getting saved. So uh, when I went to the church that night, he was talking about being saved and, and sanctified and, and going down in, in the name of Jesus, you know, being baptized. And uh, I began to uh, think I, I wanted to uh, get baptized because all the things that I tried, you know, to get rid of the condition that I had, you know, like, like drinking, smoking marijuana, you know, I found out all this wasn't doing me any good. So when I went down in the name of Jesus and, and, and uh, I still felt that same way. I still felt nervous and so fearful until I went on and joined that church. And when I joined the church, I sit there, I was seeing people testify and they was getting up talking about Jesus and I wanted to do that too, but I just couldn't do it. So then one Sunday, I was sitting so close to the front seat, and the uh, prophet called me up, and he said, he pointed at me and said, you, come here. So I went up, and he said, you know what? He said, tonight is going to be your night. He said, I see you, you've been going through. Uh, uh, God is showing me that you have a nervous condition. And he said, and you suffer with a lot of fear. And I said, yes. So I know that, you know, God was showing him these things because I never did uh, talk to him about it, to, to no one about what I was going through. So anyway, he told me to uh, raise my hand up like this, and he began to pray. And when he, he was tell, just saying, telling God to heal me, and then when he, when he, when he uh, got through praying, and I start testifying, and I start, uh, uh, I got on the Urshie board that Sunday, and then I went up there and I went into the choir. They asked me to come up there to sing one Sunday, and I couldn't really carry a tune, but I went up there and I, I started singing, and I know then that God had healed me. He healed me of that nervous condition. And that's what I've been doing. I've been going around the world. I've been telling people about the goodness of Jesus. And I've been to so many places around the world. So that's what I, I like to do. There's a question for Steve. Uh, Steve said that Kennedy initially saw civil rights as a law and order issue. Uh, what does that mean to see segregation and blatant racism as a law and order issue? To see segregation and blatant racism as a law and order issue in Kennedy's mind. Well, from Kennedy's perspective, he was mostly concerned with just keeping peace in the streets um, for political reasons. Uh, if we had um, riots, if the, if the streets were unstable, 
it was an opening for Khrushchev and the Soviet Union to say that the American system wasn't as good as the American system of democracy. So early on in his administration, he put his brother, the Attorney General, in charge of um, doing everything he could to just make sure that the streets were quiet. Um, it didn't always go that way, um, but that was really the, uh, the intent, and that's, that's really what I mean by, by it being a law and order issue. He had to advance beyond that perspective of it to understanding that it was actually a moral issue, and that's where real change came. And there's also a, a question about Birmingham in particular. Uh, what was the significance of the Children's March in Birmingham, and how did Birmingham become, become an epicenter of bigotry and of the Civil Rights Movement? Yeah, the, um, the Children's March was, was a very interesting development, um, partly because it sort of showed, in, in my view, the influence of John Kennedy on Martin Luther King. There was a time in, in Martin Luther King's um, leadership of the, of the Civil Rights Movement where he was being um, superseded by younger, by younger leaders, and he was losing his place as really the dominant force, partly because he was more um, given to his nonviolent protests, whereas the younger folks coming up were more interested in being a little bit more aggressive. So when Birmingham came around, um, King had to think hard and decide what he was going to do. Um, some people in the movement were petitioning him to, to get more aggressive, to do something more significant, to wake, wake up um, John Kennedy a little bit more. And this was partly because Kennedy was moving so slowly, he was making um, King reevaluate his way of handling protest. So after lots of um, contemplation and prayer, um, King decided that his, some of his advisors were right in wanting to put children into the streets because that would be a very dramatic, um, a dramatic development that would get the attention that was needed to truly bring home the points that um, needed to be made to uh, get Kennedy to, to actually do something significant. And in some ways, that was exactly what happened. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been extraordinary. I think I'm going to give Hannibal the last word. And, and the, this, this question is an important one. It's, have we learned anything about responding to difference with violence from Birmingham to Orlando to the shooting of the congressman yesterday? And I think you can respond. You can respond in speech or in, you can give us more music or tell us, tell us what, what we should learn from all this. Well, as a human being, I, I, I think it comes down basically to two choices. Whether you will succumb to, to the destructive spirit or whether you, will, whether you will follow the light. It's that simple. And once you make once you make that decision, if you make that decision like Fannie Lou Hamer made this to sing this little light of mine, once you make that decision, then walls can fall down on you, and you'll you'll still be okay. You could be in prison for 27 years, you'll still be okay because 
you become what you accept, what you think, you become that. And once you become that, then that, that speaks to my mind of what's meant when it says immortality, that you will never die because you become part of the Christ spirit. You, be, you become part of the Buddha spirit. You become part of the, li the light spirit. And so no matter, no matter who's in the White House, you still do the work because you become the work. And you have no choice but to do the work. If you make $10, if you make $10 million, it doesn't matter. You become the work. And that is the salvation. That is the salvation of humanity. These great souls who do the work, who choose the light. It's so clear. So, you, yeah, you have a president in office now. You're, you're president. <laughs> but it will not alter the work that should be done and has to be done. The work right here, the work right here. The work, <clears throat> the work is the salvation. So it happened in Birmingham, unfortunately. Years later, it happened in Mother Emanuel. And sorry to say it's going to happen again. But as long as we are doing the work, it will keep the world from spiritual implosion. No matter how dismal it looks, there are always the people, the spirit people, who do the work, and on earth as it is in heaven, can't be more clear than the people who do that work. They're, they're the ones who make the heaven here. So let the, let the tyrants, the tyrants, the tyrants will not stop coming. Okay, yes, I accept that. And nor will the kings and the sister college. That's my joy. You want to hear some more music? Yes. Yeah. Oh. You, want some, you want to give us some more now? Can you give us one more? All right. All right. So Hannibal's yeah. going to give us a little more music, and then we're going to go off. I'd like to play a national, a, a national anthem of America.
Today's show was edited by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR and sign up to receive Constitution Weekly. It's our email roundup of Constitution news and debate. It features all of our great constitutional content, and I hope you'll enjoy it. You can get it at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And finally, We the People listeners, this is important. We've talked to you. We've conducted a recent survey about your feedback on the podcast, which has been great. But it turns out that most of you are not members of the National Constitution Center. And I want that to change. I need you to become members of the Constitution Center, both to support our inspiring work, but even more important than your financial support is a signal of your engagement and commitment to our inspiring nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. I want you to go to the Constitution Center website, constitutioncenter.org, and sign up to become a member at any level. You can give $5 or 50 or more, but you're a regular listener of We the People. I want you to signal that commitment and your commitment to lifelong learning by joining the National Constitution Center. And on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.